Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 50, Theology Cast 2. Remember that this is an independent podcast which operates on listener support. If you want to sign up for our membership program, just go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. In our last episode, we brought the story back to Rhode Island. While we've been covering New England over the past few episodes, Rhode Island wasn't a part of the United Colonies of New England. It was more doing its own thing. After spending the last episode recapping and going through the process by which the land was acquired from the Indians, today we can get a bit more into just what Rhode Island was doing. Namely, Religious controversy aplenty. This is why we'll be having our second Theology Cast episode, to get into all the theology goodness. But before we do, I just want to reiterate the disclaimer at the end of the last episode. I'm not a theologian, I'm a historian, and so I have to deal with a lot of subjects I wouldn't consider myself an expert in necessarily, but which I'm able to speak with some authority. Today, not so much. Theology is well outside of my training as a historian, and it is also something that people who are interested in generally care very passionately about, so I'll do my best today, but please understand that if I make a mistake, my not properly understanding some subtle distinction between one particular theological perspective and another, it's just an honest mistake from someone deeply confused by the subject. So, where do we begin? I think that we should begin with Socrates. Partly because I do actually know a lot about Socrates, and also because he held a very similar belief to the Rhode Islanders. Socrates is famous as one of the fathers of Western philosophy, but his writings almost all come from someone else, usually his students, Plato and Xenophon. Socrates himself didn't write anything down, partly because he believed that the written word corrupted philosophy by putting it into a fixed form. Philosophy was far too complicated to just be written down, it needed to be explained, discussed. That was how you were able to fully understand ideas. If it was written down, someone could misunderstand, and errors could creep into the creed. That was why Socrates never wrote down his ideas. It is an idea that has merit, but it is profoundly frustrating to historians. Q. Rhode Island Rhode Island was very active in the theological field. It was very energetic. Many sermons were given, but it was felt that sermons were a unique thing. They were special to the place and time they were given, and could not be fully understood by anyone who wasn't there. So, it follows, there was no point in writing any of it down. Nobody else would be able to gain the insight from it, so it didn't need to be saved. This is incredibly frustrating to the historian of the period, and it colours everything I'm about to tell you. So, just what can we work out? Well, the Rhode Islanders were ultra-Puritans. This led to some interesting results. When you take an idea to its extreme conclusions, 
it often ends up being against what most people who like the idea believe. This is, in fact, where Rhode Island toleration came from. Puritans wanted a pure church. To enforce this, the church was fused to the state, and people who didn't believe were expelled from the colony. Roger Williams took this a step further in Providence. There could be nothing in the church which was impure. Therefore, the church was more selective in who could join. For example, the state was a very human affair, and it couldn't be allowed to meddle with the church. Therefore, they would have nothing to do with each other. The ultra-Puritans could have their church, and they didn't really care about who else was in the state. The church was pure, that was what counted, and everybody else was left to their own devices. Forcing people to join or be pure when they weren't would only corrupt the church. So, by following through on the extreme idea of exclusivity, they created a state of religious toleration. That was where things began. Then, very early on, the Puritans found another error to be purged from the church, an idea that had slowly been gaining influence in Europe for 30 years or so. The idea was that child baptism did no good because children couldn't understand what was happening. It was useless. Therefore, baptism should be reserved for adults, and only those baptised as adults could be allowed into the church. So, what Williams did was establish the first Baptist congregation in the New World. Although, perhaps a better way of putting it, was that Williams was led into establishing the first Baptist congregation in the New World. It wasn't quite the idea for him. The Baptists would try and organise themselves and try and understand their own ceremonies. The most important of these was the laying on of hands. The practice has its origins in the Bible, most notably Acts 8, 14-19, if you'll allow me to quote the King James. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomever so I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. End quote. This became part of Baptist thought, that the laying on of hands was highly important. While the Baptists sorted this out, Williams went in his own direction. He began to question what right did the church have to control its members. Unless that church had received authority directly from either Christ or the apostles, there was no church like that. The old churches had such authority, but the papacy had broken that connection by introducing many elements into Christianity which had no basis in the Bible. This led him to the conclusion that until God set up a new church, there could be no church. He dropped out of the fellowship. He didn't believe in other religions, such as the Narragansett religion, 
but he didn't see it as anything worse than an incorrect form of Christianity. And, since all churches had no authority, almost everyone worshipped some incorrect form of Christianity. This led him to complete toleration. He wouldn't try and convert the natives, or anyone else for that matter. He would preach to and pray with anyone who wanted to listen, but he didn't force his views on anyone else. While Williams went in this direction, the Baptists were going in quite a different one. Uneducated ministers were left in control without Williams there, and they would push on with their desire to uncover the single absolutely correct interpretation of the Bible. So much for Providence. Let's turn to Portsmouth. Portsmouth, you'll recall, was founded by Anne Hutchinson, who was forced out of Massachusetts for antinominianism. Antinominianism is the belief that salvation is earned through faith alone, and therefore that it was unnecessary for believers to follow biblical law. This was in direct contrast to the view that good works were also necessary for salvation to be achieved. Antinominianism was therefore very controversial. It was a threat to the purification of the church, and therefore was forced out of Massachusetts. Once Anne Hutchinson had founded the settlement, antinominianism ran into difficulties. Hutchinson might have been able to found a settlement, but forming a ministry is something rather different. She was unable to do it and soon lost religious control of the colony. There was no order, and various people prophesied their beliefs. The most notable was Gorton, who went on to found Warwick. But once he was forced out of Portsmouth in 1641, the colony lost its earlier zeal. Hutchinson left in 1643, a sign of her disintegrating religious movement. This isn't necessarily her fault. She might have spread the idea that direct communication with God was possible, as many wanted to hear, but they didn't want to be told this by a woman. A tragic element of the times. Portsmouth would continue with this sort of informal antinominianism for about 20 years. Newport was the most traditional of the four townships that would form the colony. It started out with a Puritan minister who had a traditional place in the community, but he soon returned to Weymouth, and gradually the town drifted to a prophesying form of baptism. Both Newport and Portsmouth were well set up for the arrival of Quakerism. The final settlement to deal with was Warwick, which had probably the strangest religious origin of the lot. Warwick was founded by Samuel Gorton, a man who had been kicked out of pretty much everywhere else in New England. He was a very controversial man with a strong personality. He preached. What did he preach? Uh, we don't know, because as I explained earlier, nobody thought history might appreciate it if somebody wrote this stuff down. So then, what can we work out? To borrow a phrase from James's colonial Rhode Island, a history, Warwick was an elaborate irony. Much like the obsession of Providence with keeping a pure church ironically led to religious toleration, Warwick took this to new levels. We can't be sure what exactly Gorton preached, but it was incredibly controversial. 
he had been forced out of everywhere he went. It seems that he completely rejected organised religion. He viewed that the state and religion should not remotely be connected. This was a radical view. The people who followed Gorton had been kicked out of everywhere else. They were extremely loyal to him. I think you can see where this is going. Gortonianism was characterised by controversy, but everybody in Warwick believed the same thing. They couldn't argue with each other. Everybody rejected the premise of a town church and organised religion, but they all believed the same thing. So they met socially, as people do, and they got together to talk about how they believed the same thing. By completely rejecting the principle of a church, they formed a church. I know. Elaborate irony. Gortonianism, much like antinomianism, wasn't well suited to long-term survival. It was, as the name suggests, largely based upon the personality of Gorton. It didn't long survive his death. He hoped that others would find the Holy Spirit within themselves, as he had done. But in the end, they all just followed him, and upon his death, most turned towards either baptism or Quakerism. The fact that none of his sermons were written down leads to a fascinating series of events, where some Gortonians continued to follow the creed for another century, but because nothing had been written down, they had no idea what the creed was. They knew that whatever he had preached was so insightful that it went beyond human comprehension, therefore they couldn't possibly understand what they believed. I don't think irony is quite the right word for this, but it's, uh, it's certainly something. So, this was Rhode Island in the 1640s. It was a very mixed bag of ideas, and was utterly incomprehensible to the other Puritans in the region. They saw it as a mixture of extreme zealots who embraced madness, like rejecting churches, thinking war unchristian, and had uneducated ministers. The state was viewed with suspicion. It seemed like the colony was rejecting religion, and was going down a dark road towards ignorance. It was this Rhode Island that Massachusetts wouldn't allow in the United Colonies of New England. That's where we're going to leave things for this week, before taking up the story to see how the various strands of religious thought develop and how they affect the colony. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then please consider signing up for membership. You can do that by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. You can continue the conversation on social media. We're on Twitter, at HistoryJamie, and we're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, then just send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in two weeks. (laughs) 